0: And now for something completely different. It's a fast world. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now it's the real investment show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: And good morning at 6.06 as we get this uh, hump day edition underway, of course, as we also broach mid-June. Here we are already halfway through the month, and uh, if you have, you know, if you live in Texas, um, we've already broached 100-degree highs, right? I mean, you know, so we're we're, we're right here in this summer. Mosquitoes are back, 100-degree temperatures. That's why you live in Texas home sweet home <laughs> you know it's, it's a bit of a payback right you know there's oh yeah to, to live anywhere there's there's good and bad you want to live in California well you got to deal with the taxes right you want to live in Texas well you have to deal with the heat and the mosquitoes but outside of that it's not too bad
0: you don't have to shovel this stuff off the
1: driveway exactly so you know for everything there's a good and a bad right there's nothing that's easy and there's nothing that is really just you know nirvana, right? For for everything that you get that's good, there's always a little bit of challenge. Why do I bring this up today? Like someone upset everybody this morning. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so I'm writing an article on uh, actually a two-part article on capitalism versus corporatism. And so I've been working on this for a while and really defining this difference between what capitalism is and is not and what is corporatism and i got it. and in the midst of writing this i got in you know and from time to time here on the show look i'm a big proponent of capitalism um i've started multiple businesses i've sold bunch i've had some failures you know that's just part of being in business right um but i'm a huge fan of capitalism because it allows you to build wealth over time and We got an email yesterday from a very disgruntled person. Because, you know, complaining about how, you know, the, you know, society is oppressing him and capitalism is, is, you know, sucks and it's terrible, you know, what's happened with capitalism and it's not fair and, you know, it's all about the corporations and, you know, discrimination and all these things. I mean, this, this email went on and on and on covering all the basic talking points of kind of what you hear in the media right now. I'm going to clue you into something really quick. None of it exists. Now, I know everybody's going to just at this point go, you know, what are you talking about? It doesn't exist. It only exists if you allow it to exist in America, right? In this system, you have a choice. You have a choice to be part of this group that is You know, oppressed and everything bothers them. And 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 this and nothing is their fault. And it's, you know, they're the victim of this of the system. And you have that choice. You can you can join that group of people and, you know, be a victim. And that's okay. If that's what you choose to do, but the consequences of doing that is while you'll have a whole lot of people that will surround you and and be compassionate with you and tell you how, yes, the world sucks and everything is against you and it's not your fault and you you couldn't have done anything about it, while you can certainly join that group of people, you have a choice not to. There is another choice. And that choice is, is that you get up and you start doing the, the things necessary to achieve greatness in your own way. Now it doesn't mean you're necessarily, you're necessarily going to be the next NFL superstar, but you can achieve greatness in your own way by doing the right things every day. And they're not easy. Nobody's going to pick you up and pat you on the back and tell you that you're doing a good job. But if you get up every day and start doing the right things and moving yourself in the right direction, surround yourself with the right people, you will become successful in your own way. You have that choice. But that's what capitalism is. Capitalism gives you the opportunity to build something. But it takes hard work. It takes risk. It takes dedication. It takes failure. There's nobody that's successful. If you meet anybody successful in life, they are all going to tell you one thing that they failed multiple times. You know, if you ever meet somebody that got rich overnight, it only took them about 10 years to do that because they made a choice. And this is the problem that we have in the media and all the politicization of the economy today, of, of everything that's going on, and it's, and it's this group versus that group, and this group is, is at fault for this. It doesn't exist. It only exists if you allow it to exist. Nobody's holding you back. Nobody's oppressing you. Nobody's holding you down. Nobody's stopping you from doing what you want to do. All you have to do is make the commitment to go do it. And it's not easy. You're going to get knocked down. You're going, to get run, you're going to run into roadblocks. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. But then you're going to get back up and you're going to do it again. And by doing that, you're going to succeed. That's just the way capitalism works. And if you decide to adopt this idea that you're a victim and that you can't do anything about it and it's everybody else's fault why you are where you are, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be the victim and you're not going to succeed because you have put yourself in that situation not to succeed. You have put up your own barriers against success. You can choose not to. But again, it's only something you can do. You can't listen to everybody else. You can't worry about what other people are doing. You can't worry about who's more successful than you. It doesn't matter. Your success only matters on what you do for yourself and your level of success only depends upon you and nobody else. And that's just the way it works. while everybody wants to hold up capitalism as this, this measure that has oppressed a population and all this other stuff, and it isn't. Capitalism is not about that. Capitalism doesn't even work that way. Capitalism only gives you the opportunity to achieve success on your own. Capitalism doesn't say that when you become successful you have to share your success with everybody else. That's not what capitalism is capitalism is only giving the opportunity to succeed and the problem is is that now we have confused this idea of other people's success as a measure that they need to share that success with with me and with and with all my other buddies over here who have chosen not to take those steps to be successful does that sound like capitalism to you Does that sound like what you would want an economic system to be, something that takes from those who take risk and work hard and do what is necessary to succeed, that they have to share their success with those that choose not to? Does that sound like a fair and equitable system? But that's what this group of people want. It's not the economic system that you want. So sorry for my soapbox this morning. (laughs) Like I said, long email, I've got a two-part article coming out on capitalism versus corporatism, what it actually means, but this is something that's going to be critically important going forward very quick before we get to the break market sold off just a little bit yesterday a little bit of a pullback here again just not able to really make much of an advance here over the last couple of days everybody's waiting today what is the Federal Reserve going to talk about in re- relation to inflation is it sticky is it permanent is it hyperinflation or is it transient we're going to talk about that next right here on the land, on the real investment show right after the break don't go away
0: Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. I'm over here talking away. Mike's not even on yet, so... <laughs> i got to set you up. I know. I'm here.
1: Uh, good morning, Brant. How are you? I'm well. Good. It's a Wednesday. Yep. Yep. There we go.
0: The midpoint. <laughs> the midpoint of the week.
1: Uh, speaking of the midpoint, um, we've got um, the Fed on deck the, today. Um, this is a t- the end of a two-day meeting for the Federal Reserve. And, of course, this is the hotly awaited moment, right, uh, that we always, <laughs> every six weeks, it's it's that meeting time again. And the Fed comes out, they're going to tell us that basically nothing's changed. Um, they're still looking for full employment. The economy is recovering, you know, that type of thing. There'll be very, very small wording changes to their statement today because they don't want to upset the markets. But what everybody's looking for is what are they going to say about inflation, right? That's the big thing. Um, so I'll put together some charts this morning for you. So if you're watching our live stream, you can either go to our YouTube channel, um, or go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com and just click on our live stream, uh, link, and you can actually watch the, the show live. But, um, I'm, 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 if you're driving in your car this morning, going to work, I'm sorry. <laughs> Welcome back to the world. We've opened back up, but, uh, I'll explain everything to you so you don't, so you don't miss anything. Um, couple of things here first about inflation and there's you know we, we've talked about here uh, over the last couple of days in particular you know about this big divergence between the inflationistas we talked about this yesterday those that think we have permanent high inflation is back back to the 70s and then we have the other camp which is the fed camp federal reserve camp that is transient and that's probably what they're going to say about inflation today Let's talk about a couple of things why the Fed is looking at things. Look, forget my view, forget your view, forget everybody else's view. Let's just talk about what the Fed's seeing. What the Fed is seeing right now are impacts in certain areas of the economy causing high prices, oil prices, auto prices, home prices in particular. Um, If you take a look at retail sales, as an example. We've had one of the largest spikes in retail sales and right now retail sales are about 40 billion dollars above their normal trend. And that that's a long-term trend. A retail sales climb on a very steady trend. It's just a, a kind of 45 degree angle. Um, on a chart, and it, it wiggles a little bit, but we've had this massive collapse in retail sales in, in 2020, and then now we've had this massive resurgence in sales because of all the stimulus, right? So, this is kind of the irony of the story when people run around and say, "Oh, well, there's all this money in the bank," you know, uh, uh, re- uh, retail and retail people—they're just stock full of cash. No, they're not. They spend it all. All that cash on the sideline belongs to corporations and high-net worth individuals. Your top ten percent of income earners. How do you know? Because it's all in insured money market accounts, which require a million-dollar deposit. Okay, it's not Joe, Bob, next door to you, with his ten thousand dollars in the bank. Right? That ain't. That doesn't exist. Eighty percent of people that got their checks have spent it, and you can see it simply by looking at retail sales. The problem is, is now that we no longer have all those stimulus payments, all that stimulus money has been spent, retail sales have started to decline. We've had negative retail sales yesterday. We had negative retail sales last month. That trend of retail sales is going to return back to its long-term trend. That means that we're about to see a $40 billion slowdown in retail sales coming up. That's not inflationary. Importantly, as we return back to that long-term trend of sales, see, what happened is we pulled forward about three to five years' worth of retail sales. Now what are you going to do to generate more sales? I've already bought all the stuff I need. You know, People have been going out and buying pools and barbecue pits and fixing up their yards. All this stuff that they were planning on doing down the road, they got all these checks, they went and did it now while they were locked up in the house. So that's the so the risk with retail sales is a simply a function to overall economic growth. Retail sales make up about forty percent of personal consumption expenditures, which makes up seventy percent of GDP. If retail sales return back to the long term trend, which they will, what do you think happens to GDP growth? Hmm? But this is but this is where we get to this kind of this camp of inflation, right? We've got the, the one group and if you kind of look at Google searches, right? You've got all these people that are Googling hyperinflation, right? We're back to Weimar, Germany. We've had this discussion before. No, we're not because we're not losing a war. We're not losing reserve currency status. So hyperinflation off the table, not going to happen. Disinflation. That's a more likely probability because once stimulus flows through the system and this is kind of the Fed's view, is that you're going to have—you had this inflationary surge caused by stimulus, and then you're going to get a disinflationary impulse as that stimulus rolls through the system and everything kind of returns back to normal levels. It's not deflation. It's just disinflation. There is the camp for deflation, though, which is because of the debts and the deficits and the long-term trend of economic growth that we're going to have more deflationary pressures in the future caused by what? caused by demographics, caused by the debt, caused by disinflation, right? So there you go. And of course, stagflation is one of the higher risk. It's one of the, the lowest search terms, but probably one of the higher risk potentials for the economy, which is the point where we have a deflation in wages and weak economic growth, but higher sticky prices in terms of like Grocery prices and those type of things. So the cost of living goes up, but wages don't keep up with that. So you have this stagflationary environment. Um, but if you take a look at the core CPI and, and the core PPI index, you know, those are both now running above trend after being below trend for last year. You're not surprised. We've returned back to that because of all the stimulus. We're now running above trend. And the issue there is, is that's being driven by a very small segment of inflationary categories. And particularly if you look at a breakdown of CPI as an example, what are those categories that are driving the change to CPI? It's vehicle rentals. Because when the shutdown occurred and Hertz and Avis and all these other companies were on the verge of bankruptcy, they sold all their vehicles into the markets. And so now when you want to rent something, there's no vehicles available and you pay through the nose for it. Second thing is used cars and trucks. Because everybody went out with their $14 checks and bought used cars and trucks and we've drained the system of used cars. You now have a supply demand problem on used cars, and that's driven those prices up to astronomical levels. Air- airfares, of course, have been coming back from being very depressed. And again, we measure things on a year over year basis. So, um, if you remember back during the pandemic, if you wanted to fly, you could, you could get a flight from you know Houston to Florida for like twelve bucks. And a box of peanuts. I mean, literally, it was so cheap, you could make round-trip tickets to anywhere because airlines were just desperate to get anybody willing to risk coronavirus to get on their plane and go somewhere. Those prices are now returning back to normal levels. So on a year-over-year basis, you have this massive surge in the inflation of airline tickets, although airline tickets are really just getting back to where they were previously. New vehicles, obviously, home household furnishings and and uh, uh Operational things for households have all gone up. Apparel has gone up as people have gone back to work needing to buy new clothes, all those type of things, seeing those surges there. But these are these are issues that are very, you know, minimal to the overall cost. Of inflation. In fact, if we look at inflation over the last three-month annual change, it's up eight point four percent. We were at nine point eight percent in July of 08 eleven percent in '05, nine point two percent October '90. So you know we're having inflation, but it's not outsized relative to what we've seen previously in history when we have economic restarts, right? But importantly, though, there there is a risk here, and I don't want to you know, dissuade you that inflation isn't a risk because it is. We currently right now have the the largest spread in the year-over-year rate of change between the producer price index, what producers pay, and what consumers pay in terms of the year-over-year change in CPI. Biggest spread on record ever. The the spread is like 14% difference between the two. Never happened before. Those spreads only occur at major peaks in financial markets by the way, because the impact of that inflationary impulse slows economic growth because consumers and producers are trying to pass off the cost to each other. So PPI has is, is got a large spread over CPI because producers can't pass on that inflationary cost to consumers. That's going to impact their earnings and profit margins. Consumers are having already a tough time making these ends meet. They can't afford to absorb higher rates of inflation. So that impacts financial markets longer term because of expectations of economic growth begin to slow. And that's what's ultimately going to happen. Just take a look at consumer sentiment indexes. Those continue to be below the highs that we were prior to the pandemic. People aren't, you know, consumers aren't that excited. They're buying, uh, they're buying conditions for vehicles and cars and everything, and uh, houses are all dropping like a rock because of high prices and because now stimulus is gone. They don't have any money to buy with. Take a look at the conference board survey of consumers' plans to buy news cars and appliances in the coming six months. It's falling like a rock. Right? No money to buy with. Plus, I've already bought it. I've already bought a new car. What am I going to buy another one in six months for? (laughs) Right? So that's just inevitable what's going to happen. But these are all kind of uh, deflationary pressures on the inflation complex. Groceries have fallen fairly sharply. uh, Full-service meals going out to restaurants have risen recently. Not surprising. People going back out to eat. Food at home. Dropping fairly sharply now as demand shifts for people to go back out into the world and to go eat. Right? So we're just getting back to normal in a lot of these things, but this is what the Fed's going to be looking at. And when we come back from the break, we'll kind of tell you what we think the Fed's going to do, say and do, and, and particularly where they might be headed to. We'll talk about that right after the break and what that means to the markets. Don't go away.
0: Paulo You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. hi
1: to everybody watching us live right now on YouTube. I got an email yesterday. I forgot about this. I got an email yesterday from one of our YouTube watchers. Yeah. Right? Um, watches the show all the time, you know, on YouTube. And he emailed me says, I don't understand why you run commercials in the middle of your show. <laughs> because if you don't know, this is actually a live radio show that we that we run live in both Houston and Austin at the t- same time mm-hmm. that we're streaming the live video to YouTube. So, you know, as you're watching the show live in the comfort of your own home, there are actually people driving to work, <laughs> <laughs> listening to the <this> show. <laughs> and uh, so, we do this for their benefit, not yours, really, so much. And you know, we're trying to keep them entertained on the road as they go slave away at the at the uh, coal mine. Yes. So. There you go.
0: Radio that's, stations have to run commercials, and you don't want to hear those.
1: So. <laughs> exactly. So you get ours. There you go. <laughs> but that's why there's a commercial break there. And it gives you time to go get another cup of coffee, because I know this stuff bores you anyway. And so now we're going to keep you awake. A um, couple of things. So we, we left off talking a little bit about inflation. And look. I don't care what camp you get into, right? If you want to be in the hyperinflation camp, that's great. If you're going to be in the disinflation camp, great. Look, all all I care about in terms of whether I have inflation or deflation is whether, A, I can afford to pay for the cost of living for my house, um, but also how we manage our portfolios for clients. And so while we do have an inflationary bent in our portfolio right now, we also have maintained a portion of our portfolio – Levered towards a little bit of deflationary traits because we do think that by looking at the data, that a lot of this inflationary surge that we had one is the year-over-year base effect. uh, Looking at where inflation was last year versus this year. Again, airline tickets, great example, right? That's a good example of a base effect. This time last year, you could buy tickets to uh, from from Los Angeles to. Florida were like 50 buck round trip. You know, now they're back to normal prices. So you have this huge. So if it goes from 50 to 100 dollars for a round trip ticket, then that's a 100 percent increase. Right. So it's a big inflationary surge, although tickets are just getting back to where they were previously. Right. So that's that's the inflationary surge. Now, once those things normalize and this time next year, we're going to see a big deflationary, We're going to see what's technically disinflation i don't want to say deflation but a disinflationary bend to a lot of these numbers because now all of a sudden the year-over-year increase in airline tickets will be you know five percent six percent you know whatever it is right it'll be be dramatically smaller because we'll we have the year-over-year changes the rate of change on a year-over-year basis will be much smaller but the other side of this, uh, though, of course, is, uh, again, the Fed. The Fed is walking a very tight rope here in terms of monetary policy. They have two tools, really, to work with at this juncture. One is to keep interest rates at zero or lower interest rates. Um, and their quantitative easing programs, right, all their bond buying. The problem with the bond buying is, is that creates distortions in markets, like housing, Right. They're buying they're buying 40 billion dollars a month in mortgage bonds, which have increased liquidity to the mortgage market, which has led to lenders making loans on a much easier basis to individuals to buy houses, which have now driven up the cost of houses as people competitively bid for houses in certain areas. Now, and this is the big misnomer about you know, the surge in house prices, right? It's really limited to a very few uh, few areas. If you look at the average and median home price over the last two years, yes, they're up a little bit, but not a lot. Now, you want to buy a house in, uh, sorry, if you want to buy a shack in California, you're going to pay a lot for it, right? Because it's California. So, Yes, there are certain there, there are certainly housing price increases, and that's been fueled by the liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve. And so the Fed is going to be in this kind of a, a bit of a predicament here. They've got to be careful what they say today at their meeting. So when they make their announcement this afternoon, they'll have their press conference. And we'll talk more about this with Michael Leibowitz tomorrow. And once we get all the language in, we'll kind of parse into it tomorrow. But what we're looking for today in particular is for them to start talking about nothing's really changed. We're still looking for full employment, whatever that means. And we're watching inflation, but we think that inflation remains transitory, that a lot of these – Impacts of higher prices are going to go away. Therefore, we're not going to do much with monetary policy. Now, there is a, a outside possibility, and this is something that Michael Leibowitz has been talking about here for the last couple of weeks, is that we may start hearing some talk about tapering the mortgage bond market purchases because of what's happening in the housing market. Now, they won't taper those purchases, what they'll do is they, they may say something like, um, we're going to reduce our mortgage purchases from 40 billion a month to 20 billion a month but increase our treasury purchases by 20 billion a month. So they haven't effectively tapered anything. They've just changed the balance of where they're buying. And that could very well be one of the outcomes that we're looking for today. Maybe not. I mean, they may say nothing. But they they very well could set the table, at least, for this idea of beginning to slow the purchases of mortgage bonds because of what's happening in the housing market. I know right now everybody's thinking, well, what about the stock market? (laughs) It's like they're not worried about the stock market. As long as stock prices are high, they're going to continue to push liquidity in that area because – Their belief is as long as there's high there's high stock valuations and stock prices are moving up, then that increases consumer confidence, which increases purchasing power in the markets. That's wrong in this case in particular, because what everybody was buying with was not stock market increases, but rather stimulus checks. And those are gone away. 90 percent of the stock market, as we showed on Monday, is owned by the top 10 percent of income earners. So really for the bottom 80 to 90% of the economy, they don't really benefit much from higher stock prices. Sounds like they do, but they don't. So again, that's kind of the things that we're looking for, you know, uh, you know there's going to be some some minor tweaks to language, and the one thing the market's going to really be digging to in particular is their outlook on inflation, employment, they know that that's just going to be the, remain the same here, but Keep a watch on what they say about inflation because some of these recent inflationary numbers have been big, right? We've had some very large jumps in inflationary numbers. So, again, the thing that, that really everybody's going to focus on now is what are they going to say in particular about their inflation? Are they even worried about it? Or are they going to start thinking about thinking about tapering? I don't think that they will say that. And the reason is, is that they know if they start talking about tapering or even talking about thinking about tapering, that the markets are likely not going to respond well to that in the short term. We put a chart out on Monday, uh, actually talked about it on the show on Monday, um, showing what happens to the financial markets when the Fed begins to either taper their balance sheet or just keep it the same right so they just they don't increase or decrease they just keep it the same the balance sheet doesn't go up in size right now the balance sheet is increasing every every week in size right they're doing 120 billion dollars a month so the the angle of ascent of the balance sheet is about a 45 degree angle at this point that's fairly sharp that's a fairly steep increase in their balance sheet but if they start to level that out to where it's not going up or down those periods in history the markets have not done well didn't mean they crashed But there's been a higher propensity for 10 to 20% corrections and deeper ones. When you combine a flat balance sheet with increases in interest rates, aka 2018, you wind up with a lot of volatility and 20% declines or more. So the Fed understands this. And this is why they're going to be very slow to move towards a balance sheet tapering type situation because they know what the impact to the financial markets will be. And there's really no more accommodation available. What I mean by that is, is you're at zero on in interest rates. You're already doing $120 billion a month. What are you going to do now, right? This, this So they don't have, you know, they're, they're, they've got their foot kind of pedal to the metal at this point. There's not a whole lot more to do. I mean, if you increase... Um, you know, the QE from 120 billion to 150 billion a month. It's not going to do much. It's an incremental increase. The Fed's got to be very, very careful here uh, about what they say to avoid the instability of stability. Remember, we talked about on Monday the, the stability instability paradox, which is that that is the point. What the Fed depends on is everybody acting rationally so they can just do their job. What they can't afford to have happen is, is they talk about taper and then somebody goes over here and pushes the big red button and it starts a big selling panic in the markets. That's what they can't afford. So they've got to be very careful how they word this. So, again, this is all going to be about parsing the language tomorrow. And, and we'll do this on the show with Mike in the morning. But we'll go through what they said, what the outlook is, and potentially how the markets react to it uh, tomorrow. But, again, you know, this whole week, the markets have just been kind of treading water kind of waiting for what the Fed's going to say today. So we may either wind up this afternoon with a very big surge in the markets. We could be up, you know, 1-2% by the end of the day, or we could be down 1% by the end of the day, just depending on what the Fed says. Be right back after the break to wrap up the show. Don't go away.
0: news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch & Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com. For our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care, June 24th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: Back to the show this morning uh, let's get to a couple of questions here on our uh, youtube channel so if you're watching our youtube stream live right now on the website thank you for joining us we got people from all over the world uh medellin i see this morning in germany a few other places thank you for joining us medellin medellin yes correct
0: rich colombian coffee i,
1: I know <laughs> <laughs> i need some this morning trust me <laughs> Did not, did not get a good night's sleep last night. Uh. Um, so a couple of things this morning, um, a couple of questions. One, you know, do you need to worry about a bear market before the yield curve inverts? Um, the answer to that is yes. Now, it depends on, I want to be, be careful how we say this, because you want to be careful about how you determine or define a bear market. Um, If you read our article from Tuesday on our website, I went through this in particular. Um, Up until 2019, 2017, pick your number, we generally just kind of took for granted that a 20% decline in the market would be classified as a bear market. And that percentage, it was strictly arbitrary, right, when it was kind of defined. But it worked because a 20% decline was large enough to break the preceding trend of prices. So if you think about prices in the market, so a bull market is what? Right? Prices going up. Well... See, we don't have a definition for a bull market. We don't say that, okay, if bull markets go up 20% in price, that's a bull market. We, see, we don't have any definition of what a bull market is. Bull markets are simply prices going up. That's a bull market. So then we stuck this arbitrary definition of a 20% decline to be a bear market. Well, where did that come from? Well, previously, a 20% decline would break the prevailing positive trend prices over a period of time the problem was in march of 2020 that the deviation between the long-term trend in prices and where that price was at that time that that decline was 35 percent and you still didn't break the long-term trend that had started back in 2009 So everybody runs around and says, well, March 2020 was a bear market. We're in a new bull market. No, we're not. We never ended the previous bull market because we never broke the prevailing trend of prices. Secondly, a bear market doesn't end in three weeks and then go back to all-time highs. That's not a bear market. So in 2020, uh, sorry, in uh, 2018, We had a 20 percent decline in prices. I mean, right on the cusp of the 20 percent decline in prices in September, October, November, December, as the Fed started hiking interest rates. In March of 2020, we had a 33 percent decline because of shutting down the economy, but we never broke the trend. So. If you want to classify a bear market as a 20% decline, we had a, an inverted yield curve. In September of 2019, we started talking about it here on the show. Hey, we have an inverted yield curve. We have repo going like crazy with the Fed. There's plenty of signs. The National Federation of End of Business is, is showing that we are in for a recession. And everybody's like, ah, yield curve's wrong this time. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> so you had a recession. Now, self-induced, nonetheless, but you had a recession. So you, the, the answer to the question is you don't necessarily need to have an inverted yield curve to have a big correction in the markets. But generally speaking, if you have an inverted yield curve, which leads to a recession always – you're going to have a bigger bear market decline. So, yes, yield curve. So to answer the question in a roundabout way, and I apologize for the long trip around the barn to get to the front door, that's a Texas saying. Um, Watch the yield curve. Because the yield curve does tell you a lot about forward expectations of economic growth, inflation, and ultimately stock market valuations. And isn't it interesting that here we are all talking about this massive surge in inflation that we're having and interest rates have been declining over the last few weeks. So if we have something that happens in the markets where we get the short end of the curve to pop up for one reason or the other and that longer end of the yield curve begins to decline because of over concerns about a deflationary environment and a slowing economic environment, we could very well get back to an inverted yield curve fairly quickly. We're not that far away. I mean, it, it's not going to take a big move in the markets um, from 1.4 and a half, well, you know, 1.45 percent, roughly on ten-year Treasury, back towards half a percent. That's not a huge move from this level, and you're going to be back to starting to talk about the potential for an inverted yield curve. So yes, pay attention to it. It's a good question. You know, another question here from uh, SQ. Good morning. My analysis of the market of late is good news does nothing to the positive side, and tepid or bad news has an exaggerated downside. That's where we are within the current market cycle right now. Markets have priced in all, really virtually all the good news. I mean, you know, we were running stocks up, you know, 80% from the lows in March of 2020. Revenue growth has not been that spectacular. Earnings growth has been phenomenal because of stock buybacks and accounting gimmicks, et cetera. But revenue growth has not been all that strong. As an example, since 2009, if you look at the cumulative growth of earnings and the stock price and revenue, stock prices are up over 400%. Earnings growth is up over 300%. Revenue growth is 66% higher. Cumulative So revenue growth hasn't been all that strong. It's been in line with what you would expect from a two percent growth rate in the economy. So the problem now is, to your point, is, is that lately it seems like all the good news doesn't, you know, is just kind of priced in. And that's exactly what's happened. We have we have priced in perfection in the stock market for an outlook. I mean earnings expectations for stocks are at record highs over the next 2 years. They are well ahead of what economic growth is going to actually be and there is regardless of what people say, there is a very high correlation between the rate of earnings growth and economic growth considering that the earnings that companies make come from where from the economy, because it's what you and I spend. It's us buying Apple products, us buying stuff from Microsoft, us buying stuff from Costco and Walmart and Kroger's and ExxonMobil and everybody else. That's where earnings come from. So if the economy's slowing down and I'm spending less, earnings are going to slow down. And those estimates right now are way too far ahead of what reality is going to be over the next two years. So we're going to start to see a weaker economic growth environment. And this is going to make it more challenging for stocks to achieve, you know, higher levels, it doesn't mean they can't. Um, but to have another seventy percent advance in the markets from here is highly unlikely. Um, and again, especially when you start looking at valuations, we're at three times price to sales. So that has never occurred in the history of the financial markets ever. Period. Never. never, nah, 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 Right. Never. So, again, what are you going to do for me now is going to be the, the, the really kind of the next issue for the markets, you know, kind of going forward. Um, one more question here. Uh, can we talk about sector macro effects of the uh, oil price? Good question. You know, one of the the issues of higher oil prices is the pass-through cost to consumers ultimately, because oil prices affect everything. As opposed to North Face, as we <laughs> we talked about here on the show, going, we're not going to support the oil and gas industry. Uh, yeah, you are. You are a big dependent on oil and gas prices. And if oil prices go up, cost of clothing goes up, cost of apparel goes up, uh, you know, tires go up, anything that's made out of oil and gas, which is pretty much everything you drive. Cost of your Tesla goes up because everything in the Tesla is made out of oil and gas products because they're so eco friendly. Um, That's one of the problems with higher oil prices. So, where do you want to be with higher oil prices? Well, obviously, you want to be in energy stocks. Um, That just makes sense. As long as oil prices keep going up, I mean, right now, you know, the futures contracts on oil prices are extremely long. I mean, they there are the, the bets on oil stocks and oil companies and oil prices is extremely long. And so that's really kind of setting the market up here for a bit of disappointment oil later this year. But right now, definitely want to be on those areas. The areas you don't want to be in potentially are areas that are affected by much higher oil prices and inflationary pressures. And those have been the areas that have been dragging the most as of late, like, for instance, staples. Um, you know, they've been under pressure, not performing great because they're having trouble now passing those costs on through to individuals. And that's going to start eating into their bottom line. So, It's really not a story of just high oil prices. It's really more of a story about inflationary pressures overall and how companies are going to deal with it. But again, as we kind of come back and and talk about how we're weighting portfolios in the short term, again, it's that inflation bend. And again, we're kind of looking at the, the markets from this kind of barbell approach and saying, we think that there's short term inflationary pressures. And longer term, the deflationary pressures of debt, deficits, demographics, and all this is going to show back up. So we're barbelling our portfolios right now between that inflation trade, energy, industrials, materials, and finance, relative to the deflationary trades, companies that can actually grow earnings in any type of environment, tech discretionary, and um, um, what am I? What am I missing? I'm missing one here. Just drew a blank. Sorry, tech discretionary and healthcare. Sorry. Uh, I knew there was one more. Uh, it's kind of balancing the portfolio between those two. So it's just the way we're approaching it. How you want to do it is great, but it's a good question. I appreciate it. All right, got to uh, wrap it up today. Hey, thanks for joining. Much, uh, so much for joining us today. We absolutely appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, with Michael Leibowitz, we'll talk about what the Fed actually says today, and we'll parse through the language and kind of look forward as to what markets are actually going to do with it. Again, how today ends up, it's going to be anybody's best guess, because it's all dependent on the Fed. Have a great day. New article out on the website, newsletter as well. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow.